It's time for our weekly chat with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing uh, great. How about yourself? Oh, you know, same old, same old. Another day in paradise, <laughs> as it were. What's on the agenda today? Uh, well, the uh, the first case on the agenda is a brand new decision out of the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and uh, this was a case uh, that uh, the parties involved uh, were Uber International and David Heller. <laughs> David Heller being a fellow who lives in Ontario uh, who was uh, doing uh, driving for Uber Eats. And so to become a driver for Uber Eats, what you need to do is download the Uber Eats app, scroll through a 14-page agreement, uh, tap I agree, I agree a couple of times, and off you go to becoming an Uber Eats driver. Uh, and that's what uh, Mr. Heller did. Um, Mr. Heller, however, uh, after some time uh, doing that, uh, had a dispute with Uber, um, and uh, he wished to allege that uh, Uber should have been treating him uh, like an employee rather than uh, a contractor. That was the, really the basis of the dispute. Uh, and so off, uh, off he went uh, to court. David shows up in court, and unfortunately for David, uh, the 14-page agreement that he clicked I agree, I agree on uh, included what's referred to as an arbitration clause. Hmm. Now, this particular arbitration clause, uh, the general idea is that an arbitration clause would say, look, if you have a dispute, you can't go to court, you have to go to an arbitrator. Uh, and in a fair way, I suppose the, the concept there would be that could be expeditious, cheap, and fast. But that's not how it was used here. The arbitration clause in the 14-page Uber Eats agreement uh, required that the arbitration, that no case could go to court, it had to go to arbitration in the Netherlands. Uh, and in this case, to start the arbitration, you were required to pay a fee of $14,500 U.S. That's not legal fees. That's just the administrative fees to start the process. Wow. Then you, then you would have to go to the Netherlands, probably get a lawyer and so forth, and all of this represented basically a complete year's income for David. <laughs> not very fair. No, doesn't seem and, so, at least. And so he went to court and said, well, that's not fair. And originally, the trial uh, judge uh, disagreed with him and said, well, no, if you've got some argument about the arbitration clause, you need to take that to arbitration. <laughs> Go to the Netherlands, David. Um, being unsatisfied with that result, he pressed on. Uh, and eventually now the case uh, got to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada, at least from my perspective, uh, happily concluded uh, that the arbitration clause in this case was unconscionable. And because it was unconscionable, it was invalid. Uh, and the Supreme Court talked about what is required for a clause to be found to be unconscionable in a contract, uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada uh, pointed out that there are two requirements for that. One, that there be an inequality of bargaining power, and secondly, that the, as a result of that inequality of bargaining power, there must be a resulting improvident bargain. Well, what exactly does that mean? Um, I suppose you'd have to sort of go to the definition of what is improvident from an uh, ordinary sense and then look at some of the decisions, but broadly that would mean something that's not carefully planning for the future, particularly with respect to money and being very unwise. Interesting. The Supreme Court of Canada rejected um, suggestions that to be unconscionable, more was required. The Supreme Court of Canada found that uh, to meet that requirement of unconscionability and to therefore be invalid, 
The person does not need to show that the agreement was grossly unfair. They do not need to show that there was an overwhelming imbalance of bargaining power, nor nor do they need to show that the stronger party intended to take advantage of the vulnerable party. Interesting. So it can be Uh, incidental. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to prove that Uber set out to do in David um, when they uh, drafted this contract. You need only show this inequality of bargaining power, and the result of that was this improvident bargain. Um, So I think that's a very positive decision. What it's going to mean now um, is that David's going to be able to carry on in Ontario uh, to sue Uber there. Uh, And in fact, uh, he's uh, looking to have this uh, certified as a class action. And so we may then get a decision in Ontario concerning whether people who are Uber drivers uh, are employees or whether they're contractors um, and uh, David won't have to pay a year's income to go to the Netherlands to have an arbitrator uh, decide that. So I think that's really healthy. Yes. Um, and the other thing that it calls to mind, and I must say it's great that the uh, courts are uh, using um, uh, principles like this to uh, override uh, unconscionable uh, agreements. Indeed. Um, there, there is something that just strikes you as just fundamentally unfair with many of these agreements. So all yeah. of us have dealt with them, right? Uh, you know, sort of pages and pages of things you must click, I agree, I agree, in order to do uh, anything uh, uh, in a modern world. Uh, and I think it was uh, Seinfeld said, look, you could insert the entire text of Mein Kampf into the iTunes agreement, and everyone would be clicking, I agree, I agree, I agree. It would be a fascinating social experiment to start a timer when the insertion of that text occurred and wait to see how long it took a complaint to roll in. Yes. It's, you know, very, uh, you know, no one is spending the time necessary to sort of pick apart and read the 14-page agreement. Moreover, as the Supreme Court of Canada pointed out, the 14-page agreement didn't include information like you will need to pay $14,500 U.S. in order to use the arbitration agreement. It would just say things like this must go to arbitration and you can't start a, uh, an action in court. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing that this uh, calls to mind is there's probably scope in, uh, for uh, legislative restrictions on the use of conditions like this, mm-hmm. because very commonly now they're used as a way to try to, by large corporations, to try to prevent people from getting access to the courts. Yes. You know, they, they know that if you uh, put these sort of impediments in place, it makes that much harder. And particularly, large corporations can be concerned with class actions uh, because many people aren't going to be able to spend the time and money and energy required to individually advance a claim, which for them may only be worth a modest amount. And that's really the whole point of class action proceedings. And if you can uh, try to uh, insulate yourself from all of those things by saying, look, you know, if you have any dispute with your plumbing part or your car or your anything, you must go to arbitration and you cannot go to court, one of the effects of that is to stop people uh, from, if those are enforceable, to stop people from being able to utilize um, class actions in order to uh, get a remedy for large groups of people who are potentially hard done by. Um, And so uh, I think there is scope for perhaps more Um, legislation restricting these things and also uh, restricting things like uh, conditions that require people uh, to uh, resolve their dispute in some other jurisdiction Uh, because oftentimes that of course makes it a practical impossibility um, for people 
Um, I know, for example, in British Columbia, we had some new franchises legislation a few years ago, um, and one of the things that did was restrict the ability of franchisers to say you must have your dispute resolved in, you know, name some foreign jurisdiction, hmm. which has the practical effect for the person who's bought the, you know, burger franchise or whatever, to be able to say, look, I'm sorry, I just can't go to the Netherlands or I can't yeah. go to, you know, Waco, Texas to start my claim that's just not on uh, unless the claim is a very substantial one. And yeah. so, you know, there's a real risk that these things are used in a way that's completely contrary to what would have been envisioned with the concept of arbitration. Arbitration is supposed to be, you know, efficient, inexpensive, and fast, right? That's the idea. But really, they're used uh, in these kind of agreements to often prevent people from having access to the courts uh, and to make that uh, make it so burdensome uh, that you're unable to bring your claim against Uber. So good for the Supreme Court of Canada, and this particular provision is clearly unconscionable and therefore not in effect. And, you know, we can all say to David, good luck. <laughs> I don't know what the result will be in terms of whether Uber drivers are properly employees or not, uh, but uh, I think uh, we should all be able to agree that uh, if you want to make that argument, you should be able to do so without having to pay many thousands of dollars in flight to the Netherlands. Indeed. Michael Mulligan, we'll take a quick break and return to Legally Speaking coming up in just a moment. We continue with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Now, Michael, the intersection between the justice system, bargaining power, and the economy is always a fascinating one to me because bargaining power often exists only through the prospect of one being able to seek a legal remedy in court if indeed a dispute arose that could not be resolved through otherwise satisfactory means. Absent that prospect, you find unfairness proliferating far more often than any of us would prefer. I'm reading here about a class action in B.C. alleging that operators of roll-on, roll-off marine shipping vessels, uh, does this say conspired to limit competition and inflate prices? What's the story? Yeah, this is, I think, a, I think a really interesting uh, fact pattern in case. So this was a proposed class action brought in British Columbia against this whole collection of very large multinational uh, shipping companies who would ship cars to various different places. Uh, and the basis for the claim is an uh, allegation uh, that this uh, conglomeration of shipping companies had conspired uh, to set higher prices to transport cars between uh, different locations. Um, and the theory of the class action would be because this group uh, of uh, large companies allegedly conspired in this way, it had an effect on um, customers who purchased cars in British Columbia that had ever been shipped uh, by any of these uh, entities. And the idea was, well, because they conspired to fix prices, it means that you, that the uh, car dealership perhaps that imported the car would have paid more, and you would have paid more uh, to buy the car ultimately. Yes. Um, and so this is a class action uh, alleging that all these people engaged in a conspiracy or companies engaged in a conspiracy uh, and seeking compensation for that. I exactly the sort of thing uh, which uh, the class action uh, process is intended to deal with. Yes. Because good luck to the individual consumer who might have paid a few hundred dollars too much for their car uh, trying to take on some consortium of international shipping companies. It's simply never happening. And so this is the only uh, process by which anyone's going to be able to uh, get any potential compensation if that's in fact what was going on. Now, uh, that that process was started in British Columbia, and this was the interesting element. 
two of these very large shipping companies, uh, or they're two entities, but it's Hogue Auto Liners, which are interesting if you look it up. They own dozens of ships and ship thousands of cars all over the world, didn't actually ship cars to British Columbia. Now, those particular defendants didn't deny uh, that they were parties to this alleged conspiracy, uh, but their defense was, well, hey, we didn't ship cars to British Columbia, therefore you shouldn't be able to include us in this class action. And that's the issue that the uh, B.C. Court of Appeal had to sort out, right? Is there a, you know, can this claim proceed against those particular entities? Because while they ship cars all over the place, they don't happen to ship them to British Columbia. Well, the the B.C. Court of Appeal concluded that, yes, indeed, those two, uh, those entities, that Hogue uh, Auto Liner, that that comprise Hogue Auto Liners, can, in fact, be sued. And the concept that they used is that there's a substantial connection between all of these defendants, including those ones, and British Columbia. And because the pleadings alleged that these entities, and they don't deny this, uh, engaged in this conspiracy to fix prices to transport cars, even though they may not have transported cars to British Columbia, as a result of engaging in that conspiracy, which is what's alleged, Uh it would have had the effect of raising the price of cars in British Columbia. And on that basis, the Court of Appeal found uh, that uh, those entities could, in fact, be part of the class action, uh, which I think is a really interesting analysis. uh, And it provides, I think, in the context of the last case we talked about with Uber, a good example of how and why it's so important that we have a uh, access to the courts and uh, a scheme that uh, permits people to uh, advance a claim in this collective way. Otherwise, there's no hope uh, that somebody's going to be able to go and arbitrate or sue in small claims court, you know, these large uh, multinational companies. Yeah. And so this will create a way in which uh, that claim can be tested, a decision be made. Uh, and uh, I think it's another example of how uh, that, the, that is to say, the class action scheme uh, really has a benefit to uh, consumers because without it, uh, all of this sort of activity could go on simply with complete impunity. Yeah. I always find matters of territorial competence and jurisdiction to be interesting because, of course, in civil law here in Canada, it's a provincial responsibility. So we see um, non-uniformity even going from province to province in terms of certain torts and their remedies being either fully recognized or not being recognized. You add to that the additional layer of complexity of international corporations. And, well, I can see why some lawyers are able to command such hefty sums for being able to navigate these labyrinths, Michael, because they are anything but simple. That's for sure. Um, in BC, one of the things that happened uh, just recently was a change to the class action um, legislation, which will uh, perhaps provide some simplicity in that it would allow class actions that are started in British Columbia to include people who don't live in British Columbia, right? For example, if there was a, in other provinces of Canada. So, for example, if uh, a class action is started over, you know, let's say a defective part or something of that sort, uh, you could, by default, include anyone who lived in uh, Canada uh, is as part of the uh, uh, the group of people that would be uh, involved in the class action. Prior to those legislative changes, you could only include people who lived in British Columbia or other people who actively found out about the case and took an affirmative step to opt in, like saying, hey, by the way, I bought that $10 part that broke, 
And of course, that's going to miss all kinds of people. So one of the changes that was made uh, would permit uh, class to be defined in a way that would include people who don't live in BC, even for a claim that started only in British Columbia. And the idea there would be to avoid duplicate claims all across the country, you know, to capture all the different people who, for example, paid too much for their car to be imported, um, with the idea there that it could simplify things and avoid uh, duplicate uh, litigation. Um, Speaking of litigation, litigation at all times can be expected to consume resources, which is why it's often a last resort in terms of dispute resolution mechanisms. Uh, I see a story on the docket here that has to do with uh, legal fees, when they can be challenged, and why such a challenge may end up causing the amount of money owed to actually increase. How does that all work? Yeah, I must say I smiled as I read this uh, decision, which just came out from the B.C. uh, Supreme Court. Uh, This was a case that involved a local uh, developer, Mr. Matthews, uh, and a bunch of uh, companies, some of which were associated with the the Bear Mountain development. Uh, And it's a case that involved what was described as complex litigation uh, concerning, it sounds like, the sale of uh, properties. All of the details aren't set out, but a complex piece of litigation where Mr. Matthews and a whole bunch of companies he was associated with were being sued. Uh, and Mr. Matthews and the companies uh, hired uh, law firm Steichman Elliott to defend the claim, uh, and the thing sort of went on and on with Mr. Matthews, at least as described here, uh, being very engaged in the process, wanting to do things like review letters and, uh, you know, approve this and that, being helpful, quote-unquote, uh, to the litigation uh, process. Uh, and the effect of all of that uh, were uh, a whole bunch of uh, legal uh, bills, which eventually, it sounds like, came to a head uh, when uh, money in some of these entities that was paying them uh, ran dry, and Mr. Matthews had to, I think, go to some of his partners to contribute to the cost of this litigation. Uh-huh. Uh, eventually the case settled, um, and uh, then Mr. Matthews uh, and these companies uh, asked for a review of the uh, law firm's accounts. And there's a provision for that in the Legal Profession Act that allows for a review of lawyers' bills to make sure that they're fair and reasonable right, or if there's error in them, it's designed to be sort of an efficient way to uh, review those things. Yes. Now, all that's fine, uh, but uh, the way in which uh, Mr. Matthews and the companies decided to pursue that was described as uh, wanting to review every dollar paid, wanting a complete refund of all the monies that were uh, paid by way of legal fees over the uh, long, complex dispute, um, and refusing to narrow the focus of that in any way, such as uh, resulting in an 11-day hearing uh, and all manner of time and expense reviewing the bills. Uh-huh. The net outcome of all of that was a uh, very small reduction in the uh, bill. Ultimately, the bill was $432,000, and there was some, I think, $23,000 adjustment to that on the basis that the uh, conclusion was that the lawyer should have pointed out in writing Uh, that uh, conducting a defense of the uh, claim uh, in the most vigorous way uh, could have resulted in spending more than the claim was worth. Uh But because of how Mr. Matthews and the companies decided to uh, challenge every dollar spent and conduct an 11-day hearing reviewing it, uh, they wound up having the fees reduced by $22,500, but then then resulted in them getting a bill of costs of an additional $36,465, uh, as a result of uh, uh, conducting an unfocused 11-day uh, review uh, of every dollar spent in this uh, complex piece of litigation. So I must say, as a lawyer, I smiled reading this thing, both in terms of 
the sort of quote uh, helpful client wanting to review every letter and thing that was done, uh, and then also the uh, the unfortunate way that it sounds like both the original litigation was defended, uh, and then also uh, the way the uh, what was supposed to be sort of an expeditious review of uh, a bill to make sure it was fair and correct uh, resulted in this unnecessary or very long at least. Uh, review that wound up costing more than the uh, the amount of money involved. So I think the big takeaway for people is um, when you're engaged in litigation of any sort or any kind of a dispute, you, you always should keep in mind the scope of the dispute in relation to the costs of pursuing it. Uh, and when you're having a dispute over uh, money, uh, you should uh, always bear in mind uh, the cost of uh, defending or bringing a, an action uh, versus the uh, the amount of money actually involved. And our, our uh, civil litigation scheme is designed to encourage that uh, by means of cost awards, but obviously it uh, doesn't always have exactly that desired effect. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers here in Victoria. Appreciate your knowledge and insight as always. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX 1070. Michael, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye now.